I just want to share a few quick thoughts and then we're going to uh, wrap, wrap things up. Um, I want you to think and I want to try and uh, provoke your thoughts to thinking about what today has got to do with you. Um, it's obviously about the people that are getting baptized. But I think it's about all of us. And let me just take a few moments to try and uh, convince you that I think there's something for all of us this morning. Because this morning, while it's a very personal act, is part of a much bigger story. And in being part of a much bigger story, there's application for every one of our lives. So the personal act that we saw friends and family go through this morning zooms right out into a bigger picture that's part of a much bigger story, which is actually the story of the whole world. And when we get an understanding of how this is the story of the whole world, it kind of boomerangs back and it leaves us with a choice to make in our lives. And it ends up being personal for all of us. Because the baptism act that individuals go through <clears throat> as an act of following Jesus, it reminds us of one of the most monumental kind of uh, acts of God in the Bible and in the history of the world, I suppose. This is just one of the kind of Hollywood pictures of the Exodus. That time in the history of Israel where God came down and he met Moses in a wilderness, in a burning bush, and God said this, I have heard the cries of my people. And their sorrow or their pain, their cry has gone up before me. And now I am going to come down and deliver them. I don't know about you, but the thought that the cries of the slave people, the ones at the lowest of the low, the thought that the cries of God, the cries of those people go up before God and that he hears them and that not only he hears them, but he comes down and he wants to deliver them. That does something to my heart. I'm, I'm, my heart is warmed at, at, by the thought that the God of the maker of the universe, the one who spoke and light just shot out of his mouth, the one who created everything that there is, the one who the Bible portrays as being holy and other and beyond us and transcendent and awesome and all of those qualities that are blowing our minds is also the God who is closer to us than our breath, who is also the God who hears our cries and doesn't just hear them in some resigned way, is moved by those cries, is moved by them inside God, whatever that looks like. And I don't quite know but the Bible teaches us and shows us that God is not passive in this way. He's not resigned. He is moved and affected by the cries of his people. And so he comes down, and through Moses, God leads his people, right? These wandering bunch of nomadic slaves who at this particular point are called the Hebrews in the Bible story, and God delivers them out of slavery, and the way he does that is they get to like a big sea and they're like, well, what are we going to do now? And Moses says, God says to Moses, stretch out your rod and he stretches it out and the wind comes or whatever and blows back these two big walls of water and off they go. There's probably between one and two million of them, by the way. Can you imagine? Just refugees basically on their way out of slavery, looking towards freedom. And they go through these seas that have been separated. And as they go through, the last one, 
you can sort of picture the scene. Like, you know the way you're kind of like shouting at your kids, you know, to hurry up, you know, or whatever's happening. Like, they're trying to get through. And then they hear the sound of the enemy coming behind them. Pharaoh thinks he's lost his workforce. So he's on the charge after them. All the Egyptians have run into the sea and their horses. God sends confusion into them. And as the last Israelite gets to the other side of the Red Sea, those two big walls of water come crashing down. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that they reckon some kind of geek kind of person like me, right, went and tried to work out if there was one million of them, they were probably needed, and they walk, and it took them a whole night to walk through. It would mean that they'd need to walk at 5,000 abreast, and it would probably have taken, it would probably been three miles long, right? So that's, that's, that's a big amount of people, which means these big walls of water must have been huge, must have been like beyond what we can probably conceive. And then I want you to imagine that as the last Israelite gets through, they come crashing down. They come crashing down on everything that represented their past. Everything that had defined who they had been to that point. Their sin, their brokenness, their slavery, <clears throat> being, being the the least of the least and being known in that and being having that reproach on their life in those moments as they cross over. Everything, everything that represented their past was completely obliterated. And they sung a song and they shouted and they jumped and they danced. And if you can imagine cheering at a goal of your favorite football team or something, it does, it peels into insignificance when you think about the shout that went up and they said, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Because those who had known and only known slavery had now been set free and God had delivered them. Why did God deliver them? He delivered them because he loved them. And I'd love to like try and make that a little bit more like extrapolate extrapolate that a bit and try and like make it sound more than that, but I can't. God delivered them because he loved them. And in fact, he said to them one point, I didn't deliver you, I didn't choose you later on because you were the greatest. I chose you because you were the least. This is a God who goes to the bottom of the rung. It's a bottom-up kind of kingdom, this one. And <clears throat> what does that mean for us? It means that the part of you that you don't even like about yourself, God loves. The part of you that nobody else actually even knows about. The part of you that feels most sinful, most broken, most painful is the part that God loves. That's the part that his love is pursuing this morning. And not only does he deliver them, but he wants them to become his people. And he wants them to partner with him to basically showcase to the world what he's like. And so he wants these kind of uh, slave-wandering, nomadic, uncivilized bunch of people to start becoming a holy nation, to start becoming a community that looks like God himself, because that's what God has always wanted. And so he gives them commandments because he says it would be good if, <clears throat> it'd be good if you didn't kill and you didn't steal. And if you love the Lord, if you love me with all your heart and soul, if I was number one, 
And he gives them these commands and he tries to make them into holy people because God has always wanted people who will share his dream for the world and who will hold his hand in a sense on the earth and partner with him to see his dream, his dream for his presence, his beautiful presence for all mankind to fill the earth. And when God brought the children of Israel through the wilderness, or sorry, when he brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, we're told that he called them at this point, he called them his his son. We start to see like this affection between God and his people, despite the fact that we see these big, mad, kind of unbelievable acts of God's power, like coming down on a mountain and smoking the mountain, shaking and and. <clears throat> Just providing like bread for them in the mornings and bringing water out of despite all these big um, acts of power and supernatural activity that God was doing, you also start to see this affection from God. He calls those people his son, and the Israelites begin to understand this because they start to refer to God's favor as the light that's shining from his face. And we've been looking at a series here in church called Unveiled Faces. And part of what we're discovering is that we're starting to realize in the Bible, the favor and the presence of God is the light and the smile that shines from his face upon humanity. And so God's face and favor was shining onto the people of Israel. That's why when they put their little boys and girls to bed every night, they would have said a prayer like this, the Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his what? Face to shine upon you. And the Lord lift up his countenance or his smile upon you and give you peace. God is a good, good father. And the Israelites were the ones that he chose to redeem them from slavery, to bring them through the Red Sea, to bring them into a land of promise and into a land of destiny so that they could show the world what God's really, really like. God didn't stop with just bringing them through the Red Sea. He wanted them to partner with his dream for the world. The thing about it was, ultimately, the children of Israel, for the most part, they didn't do this really well. They fell into idolatry. They sinned. And yet, in the midst of us, God's heart did not stop loving them. And God did not give up. And ultimately where I want to bring this to this morning is the fact that Jesus became the fulfillment of Israel's story. He became the one true Israelite. He became the one that showed Israel and the world what God really looks like. And we have seen, the Bible says, the glory of God, the light of God, the favor of God. We've seen it in a face. And the face of God is the person of Jesus Christ. And he gets down and he looks at us like he did with the Israelites in the place of that we hurt the most, and that we feel most sinful. And if you want to give me one example, let, let me give you one example. There was a woman one day caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her before Jesus, and all the religious people stand around, and they say, according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gets down in the ground, starts to doodle or something on the, on the, on the dust of the ground, and I reckon what he does in those moments is he looks that woman in the face. He looks her right in the eye. And he looks into her soul, the part of her that feels the most shame, the part of her that everybody else is trying to reinforce her shame. And Jesus looks into her eyes. And he says, those of you who have cast the first, those of you who have not sinned, you can cast the first stone. 
And what he does in that moment is he deflects the shame that she's feeling onto himself. He says, I'll take that for you. And now there's a better life for you. You don't need to be doing that anymore. Go and sin no more. Right? This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we love. And so, in doing so, Jesus showed us the face of the Father. Jesus showed us what God is really like. Jesus showed us that God loves the parts that we don't want, love about ourselves, and he wants to redeem them, and he wants to make us into new people. And then Jesus himself, as he shows us that, he finally, well, not finally, before he begins his ministry, when he's 30 years of age, he'll go walking down the shores of the Jordan one day, and John the Baptist, he's this madman for the Lord, right? He's like the forerunner. He like eats locusts and stuff and chews honey and stuff like that, right? And he, Jesus walks down and, and John the Baptist notices him and says, here he comes. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus will be baptized himself. And when Jesus is baptized, not only do the waters open up this time, but the heavens open up. It's like, it's like heaven is peeled back. And, and what, what do we hear? We hear the Father say, you are my son. Just like he, he called the children of Israel way back when he brought them through the Red Sea and he started to call them his sons and his daughters. So in Jesus himself, God the Father speaks over Jesus. You are my son and I'm pleased in you. I have delight in you. I love you. I'm so proud of my son, Jesus. And Jesus becomes Jesus becomes the prototype of the new humanity. He becomes a symbol in that act and who he is becoming of what Jesus wants, what God the Father wants for all of us. And so what Jesus would then go on and do on the cross, he would let evil and sin have its whole way with him. Evil and sin and wickedness will do its best, and they will crucify the one who created them in the first place. And Jesus will burn in his own body on the cross, and he'll find a way when he's doing that to say words like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Because Jesus has found a way that the love of God will trump the power of evil. And Jesus will die on the cross. He'll bear the sins of the world as it does its best on him, as wickedness and evil will do its best on him. But they cannot hold him. And they cannot contain him because his love is stronger than death itself. And Jesus rises up out of the grave and his resurrected body conquers death and death and hell. So that each and every one of us can come to know that victory in our own life. And so the stuff that we like least about ourselves can be healed, restored, forgiven. We can be set free. We too can walk through a Red Sea. We too can get to the other end and we can watch as we choose Jesus. We can watch the walls fall down on every, the walls of water that wash away at all. And what we saw in the Exodus story, we see fulfilled in Jesus when his own blood, which, fell, which trickled down from the cross, cleanses us and washes us from all our sin so that we can now not just be saved and delivered, partner with him, partner with Jesus in his dream for the world. And so while we've splashed about in a bit of water this morning, 
don't for one moment underestimate the power of what we've just done. Because people who have come to realize what I've just said, as Maria said, they're just from the feeling of darkness sitting on our shoulders, like weighing her down, to feeling the light and the love of Jesus just pour into her heart, pour into her heart. And as she's changed and transformed today, what she and everybody else has done, as they've got into these waters, is said, we want to recognize what you have done for us, Jesus, but we want to join you now. We want to join you now in seeing your dream for the world come to pass. And we'll do that by identifying with your death, by stopping living for ourselves, by claiming allegiance to you, and by walking into the fullness of all that you have for us, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead would be in us, and that we would partner with him to see his kingdom come. And so the very individual act there helps us think of the big story of what God's doing in the world. And I suppose that kind of brings us right round to, what about you? What about me? So when I see this, so my, my um, little daughter, Annie, she got baptized last year. And like Johnny was taking photographs, it's not for the Port of Down Times or anything, right? It's so that we can look at that photograph and we can remind ourselves, because that was Romans 6 was saying. Remember. Re- remember what your baptism was all about. Remember that time when you identified with death. You chose not to live your own way, not to fulfill your own selfish desires, your own kind of fleshy desires. But remember that time you decided... You wanted to live up to Christ. As Tristan said, I want to take on the nature of Christ. I want to take on the character of Christ. And I want a symbolic act that's going to remind me that that's who I've become, that's who I've become so that I can show the glory and the love of Jesus to the world in which we live. And each and every one of us today, I'm, I'm reminded about that, even though I love Jesus and I've been following him and I'm a Christian. I'm reminded of that as I look at this today. I'm reminded what it should do in my life because this is a daily kind of thing that we work out as well. But maybe for some of us for the first time, this is something that we've never really understood before, never maybe even seen before. In fact, we were coming today, I think it was all a bit weird, right? But maybe in the midst of it, the Spirit of God just wants to draw your heart into this act that shows you and reminds us of the big story of God, that God is coming to redeem and rescue us from our sin and our brokenness, take us out of slavery, deliver us from that, obliterate the past, and bring us into a land of promise and destiny where we join with him to bring his goodness to the world. That's the destiny for every person in here. And it doesn't... At the moment, I, I, I don't mean this to come across rude, but I don't care whether you believe that or not. This is what the truth of the Bible says to us about the death. And, and I love the fact that what we did today in baptism was two or three of the guys testified, I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel. And so what we're doing today is we're exposing that lie that we don't feel. Because none of us feel worthy, but Jesus makes us worthy because of what he has done. And I love how we've been able to expose the lie of the devil who wants to keep you locked in shame, locked in unworthiness. Be able to expose it today and say, what Jesus has done is more than enough. And all my sins, all my enemies have been defeated. (laughs) They've all been washed away and those walls and those waves of water that have come crashing down and everything that represents my past. So let me pray today, and then we're going to close this time and then get some tea and coffee.
just in, in these moments as we pray, just take a moment just in silence and just allow the Holy Spirit maybe just to speak into your heart today, wherever you're sitting. Maybe God just wants to say something specific to you. If you'd like to know that truth this morning, that in Jesus, all your enemies, all that represents the past, that's broken and dysfunctional, <clears throat> represents the sin in our lives. If you'd like to know that this morning, all you simply need to do is ask Jesus to forgive you and allow the light that's shining from his face towards you right now fill your heart and soul. Just accept it and receive it. And ask Jesus to come and be your Lord. And so Jesus, today we thank you that in you all our enemies have been defeated. Thank you that we are new creations. Thank you that your love has captured our heart, set us free, liberated us from everything that's felt like it has enslaved us, oh God. Lord, that you have led us into promise and to destiny to live for you and to serve you. And Lord, we thank you for the act of baptism this morning that reminds us of that. Father, we thank you for Tristan and Annabelle, for Sue and Paul, for Keith, Miriam, Joyce, Maria, and Helen. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in their lives and how you've brought them to this place where they wanted to publicly acknowledge us before family and friends today. And Lord Jesus, as a community and as a family and as a church here, we stand with them. Lord, we commit ourselves to walking with them into increasing Christ-likeness. And Lord, may their testimony today also speak to us as we live for you, Jesus, more fully and wholeheartedly in the days ahead. Bless everyone that's come along today, Lord. We pray that your spirit, Lord, would just rest on them now and be at work with them. And all of the needs that we all carry individually, we pray, God, that your presence would come and that we'd be aware of your pursuit of us, God to bring us into freedom. And so, Lord, we just speak that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom and there's liberty. And God, I speak that freedom over everyone here today and over this church and over what you want to do in this town and in this nation. We speak the freedom that comes with acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ, O oh God. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.